With the world of work turned upside down, how can we make sure that on-the-job learning meets the needs of the business and its people? I'm Nigel Cassidy, and this is the CIPD Podcast. So classroom and most face-to-face learning had to go out of the window. Necessity has been the mother of invention in L&D. Digital tools have been deployed, piping training to wherever our people are. But what do we do next, other than mutter something about hybrid learning? Well, for this podcast, we thought we'd ask two experienced learning specialists to share what they have learned on how to reimagine, reinvent and deliver what your organisation needs now. With us, firstly, a learning scientist, though, as she likes to say, not in a white coat and safety goggles kind of way. She's all about applying science-based learning to business performance, the co-founder of Stella Labs, Stella Collins. Hello. Hello. And from the home team, David Hayden, the CIPD's Digital Learning Portfolio Manager, who's been a contributor to published research on all this. Hello, David. Hello. Well, let's start with where we are uh, with David, thanks to the pandemic. I wonder if you could just kind of summarise for us quickly how L&D practice has had to pivot. I mean, how, how is it typically managing to deliver? number of organisations have reacted in a, a very similar way. So they, they, they were able to take a pause, able to look at what digital options were open to them. A number of organisations tried to lift and shift their uh, traditional face-to-face offering and, and put that into a series of virtual classrooms. However, very quickly, people realised that you couldn't actually do that. Move a five-day course into the equivalent number of virtual learning classrooms. Something had to give. So over the course of the year, we saw a lot of people really adapt and and reframe how they put their learning content out there. Um, and I think it's also important to mention as well, not every single organisation followed the same path. And in some organisations, they still had an element of face-to-face for their organisation. Because, of course, people are working face-to-face with the public or doing crucial work with uh, technology or something. So, I mean, it's such a mixed picture, isn't it? Absolutely is. Absolutely is. So Stella, let's uh, turn to you. Uh, What is your sense of how we're managing? I think people have managed incredibly well, mostly. I think at the start, there was a lot of panic and, and, you know, everything on on LinkedIn and Twitter was all about, how do I do virtual learning? Um, I think people have adapted incredibly well. Some people are now doing really great virtual learning, but I think they were the ones who were well-equipped beforehand. They'd already been experimenting or, or using it regularly. I think there's still quite a lot of people who are struggling with the online platforms, um, struggling to kind of make things really engaging for people. So there's a lot of kind of content delivery, which isn't learning. It's just content. Um, So I think there's a real, like David said, really, there's there's a real mix and a blend. Um, And like you say, David, there are some organizations. One of our clients is they're they're a factory. They're a manufacturing organization. They still do face-to-face learning because they're still working on the factory floor. Um, but we've got other clients who everything's gone digital now. And, you know, one of our programs we're going to run is a, a leadership program. And we're going to d- deliver that digitally, which I think most people haven't done before. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that actually pans out in, in, you know, in reality when it, it's implemented. Yes, I mean, slightly ironic in a way, because one of the things that's important to leadership is forging those relationships with every individual in your team. And of course, that's very difficult. David, you did this big learning and skills at work report with Accenture. Can we drill down a bit more into 
some of your findings in that? Absolutely. So we had over a thousand respondents and one of the things we noticed that in a third of the organisations, they had budgets or resources cut, which kind of was a, another added layer of challenge on top of the fact that the, there was a pandemic. Uh, we also noticed um, the number of organisations where um, learning and development staff were furloughed, which again proves another kind of layer of complexity. How do you, how do you adapt to your organisation changes when you've got less people? So we, 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 we saw a number of organisations through that. And we saw, um, as you would expect, that dramatic swing towards the use of learning technologies. However, the bulk of that tended to be the use of virtual classrooms, as opposed to some of the broader um, examples of digital technology out there. Yeah, because a lot of this digital learning has been around, hasn't it, David? The platforms have been there. In some cases, organisations have been reluctant to use them. It's like what a lot of people have said about COVID in other ways. It's kind of brought 10 years of revolution in 10 months. Absolutely. So so some of the wider resources that are out there, so short, short videos, podcasts, interactive PDFs are all things that are starting to to grab the excitement and, and creativity and innovation of learning development teams and and they are starting to be used but yeah the, the main bulk was we, d- we did see in the research of take up of virtual classrooms. Yeah now Stella I'm beginning to blanch when I hear about PDFs and webinars and all that. How good are we at monitoring how effective this training is particularly where it's moved to a digital platform? I don't think we're anywhere near as good as we can be and as good as we could be. And I think that's one of the things we really need to start doing is is really measuring what works. You know, we know that some things about digital are are really valuable. Um, I think it's much more democratising. Everybody can have a voice in digital if if it's a good digital platform. But also there are some challenges around um, attention, around kind of people feeling really tired with a lot of online stuff. You know, it does it does use your brain in a different way to you know, genuine face-to-face connection and our brains have not evolved as quickly as COVID has evolved. So um, I think there's big changes coming, but I think what we need to start doing is measuring really what does work. And by measuring what does work, then we can actually create, you know, the best blend that is going to work. And um, that's some research we're doing at the moment with the University of Antwerp is looking at, you know, what's a really good blend and what is it that can support a a learning journey for learners, you know, both from their own side, but also, you know, what can managers and mentors and peers do to support them and use that data to sort of support the the learning journey and find out what is effective, what is turning things into real-world application. Okay, well, we'll delve a little more deeply into how we can start doing that in a minute. But before we do that, let me go back to David Hayden. And again, perhaps uh, from the work you've done on the Learning and Skills at Work survey and uh, other CIPD work, what would you say about how you begin to assess the effectiveness of what you're delivering? If you're in an organisation with a, with a catalogue of learning programmes you can go on, you've got to ask yourselves, when were those programmes designed? So if they, if those programmes were designed five years ago and learning development teams are offering those programmes 
maybe month in, month out or, or, or three or four times a year. Those programmes were designed in the time when an organisation was very, very different. So if you've got a product manual of training courses, then I, I suggest that's not quite in line with where the business is today or where it needs to be tomorrow. So really kind of do we understand what our people skills are, how that marries up with the people skills needed for today and tomorrow, and then start shortening that gap. Really kind of how does any learning offering align with the organisation's key performance indicators? So everything that learning development does, there will be someone in that organisation responsible for a key performance indicator around that. So we've got to get closer to those people and and really make sure we are sharing the same message as they are. That, that's where we've got to start. Totally agree with David there. However, we've just been working with a really interesting company who recognise that key performance indicators are, are important, but they're also actually talking about things that aren't key performance indicators. What can they measure, you know, in terms of, you know, people relationships, in terms of, you know, just their relationships with their customers? And they've been really interesting about saying, we don't only want to measure KPIs, we want to see, hear and feel different behaviours, which are slightly harder to measure, but they're really focused on that. And I, I'm really curious to see how are they going to measure it? That's part of the question we're doing at the moment. And what's going to be the long-term impact of that rather than just the standard key performance indicators? So if I've got this right, Stella, what you're saying is that the evidence, the data that you're gathering really has to go right to the heart of what the training is for. And it starts with the management's requirements. And it's only later that you actually devise uh, the detail. I don't think it necessarily starts with management requirement. It might actually stop with people on the, you know, the shop floor or where, wherever it is we're working. Um, you know, I really think we need a learning revolution. I don't think learning should come from above. I think learning should come from everywhere in the organisation. It needs to come top down, bottom up and from the sides. Well, what you say is very convincing, but there might be organisations who haven't quite cottoned on to that. So how do you get that message over to management that in the longer term, in terms of uh, happy, contented, productive staff uh, that stay a decent length of time, uh, they need to adapt and understand that? I think that comes to, you know, kind of really looking at what's the, the learning culture in the organisation. Um, um, yeah, what's the culture in the organisation? It's beyond the learning culture. Are you allowing your people to show initiative, to be innovative, to come up with good ideas and take those ideas forward? Or are you a kind of very hierarchical, top-down organisation that doesn't? And I think the more we can support everybody in the organisation, we're saying, look, I really need to learn this because... I'm the one who's doing this job. I know what I need to learn. And rather than then take, you know, months and months and months for L&D to come up with something, maybe they can find ways for themselves to actually do that learning. And I think for that, the key skill we really, really need is the skill of learning to learn, because so many of us don't actually know how we learn. There's lots of myths and, you know, all kinds of fairy stories out there about learning. And I think if we could teach people the skill of learning, that would actually help us upscale on all the other skills. It's like the foundation skill. And to build on that, so so not only learning about learning, which which which, which is which is fundamental to the job we are doing, but also learning more about the tools we have got at our disposal. So, for instance, if, if someone says, yeah, I evaluate our products using Kirkpatrick, for instance, and there are other models available, but 
Kirkpatrick seems to tend to be a popular one. Do we really understand what Kirkpatrick said in the 1950s, where it came from, Cat Cell in 1948, and then how have the Kirkpatrick Foundation evolved over the past 50, 70 years? And what are they saying now? Because giving a happy sheet out or a, or a, a quiz at the end of an online session isn't measuring in terms of what the organisation needs or what we need as professionals to say, actually, I am making a difference with my learning and development provision in this organisation. So we need to learn about learning, absolutely, as Stella says, but learn really what the author said about the tools we think we are using. I, I just think it's really important that, you know, Kirkpatrick, yes, it was kind of a, it's a useful model, but, you know, there's many more models that are much more focused on the the doing. How can we tell that people can make take action in the workplace? So Will Tallheimer's model, for instance, really looks at, you know, can people make decisions at work as opposed to have they learned whatever it was they were supposed to learn? But can they use that learning? And I think there are, you know, there are better models now available. I think Brinkerhoff is another one which is focused on the doing. And that's what learning is about. Learning is about something to do. David, Budgets are being cut. You mentioned earlier that people are having to effectively do more with less. I mean, the crisis is forcing learning and development to prioritise, isn't it? And uh, in some ways, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yes, so uh, it, it, it can very much be. So one of the things I noticed prior to the pandemic is those organisations that saw their budget cut year on year were actually doing more innovative things with the, the less money and the less resource that they had. And, you know, can that it, it gives us an opportunity to to actually be more creative. Some of the things we saw before the pandemic, those organisations that had very, very healthy and growing budgets were less likely to adapt some of their traditional systems. So it can it can be viewed as 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 a positive thing. So Stella, when you're called in to help a company improve the performance of their learning, tell us the kind of problems that you work on people? I mean, is it about uh, fully understanding and using these complex tools that were mentioned earlier or people's problems with uh, learning development more fundamental? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's about first understanding, you know, where the organisation is and where they want to go and where their people are and where they want to go. So really understanding that kind of culture organizationally and the learning culture because everybody has a learning culture sometimes it's a great one and sometimes it's it's an ineffective one but everybody has one and from there you need to start understanding you know what is it the the people want what is it they need to be able to do who's involved in the learning process because if you're learning something you can get so much support from you know your your managers but I think peer learning peer-to-peer learning is something that's been somewhat neglected and I think that is one of those innovative ones that you were talking about, David, that organisations who haven't got money are using peer-to-peer learning. And that's how we always learned from the start. Sheila, how do you do that when people are primarily online or working remotely or say they come into the office but not on the same day? So how do you get that peer learning going? So, yeah, a little bit harder when it's not face-to-face, but there's no reason why we can't um, have... So one of the things we do in our organisation, we have something called brain time. Once a month, one of us and everybody in the organisation has to take a turn 
um, one of us shares something with the rest of the team, teaches something else in the rest of the team. Sometimes it's something really practical. Sometimes it's something a little bit kind of more philosophical or principled based. So that's one thing you can do. But you can also, you know, make sure that you're using the tools that are there, you know, use Teams or whatever, you know, Slack, whatever it is you're using in your organization. You know, create the wiki, create that user generated content that is usually what people find useful themselves. And if they can share that with their colleagues, it becomes useful, you know, across across the organization. So I think it's about it is again, it's it's about not having learning come from the top but actually having learning spreading throughout the organization and enabling people to, to feel confident and share that, that learning, share, share what it is they're doing and how they do it. Well, let's talk better future delivery. And of course, invariably, as we've been hearing, that means tech. I wonder what we can learn from the use of digital tools and e-learning platforms. You've mentioned one or two of them since the pandemic I was struck, David, by a finding in your latest Learning Skills at Work report that the shift hasn't necessarily been to the more advanced tools with the most potential. For the second year running, the report highlighted that tools such as virtual reality, augmented reality um, are nowhere near as popular as, as, as tools such as virtual classrooms, for instance. And you know, kind of, there is a there is a huge setup cost for for those kind of tools. Again, it's kind of really important not to go out and buy the tool just for the sake of buying the tool, but make sure there's a a recognised um, business need for that. I've I've seen um, things like um, virtual reality and augmented reality work really really well in in places like fast food restaurants, in places like mining industry, and where there's complex production. So so where you're stopping the system, that's really, really expensive, but you can use that kind of technology to really hone in and develop people's skills so you're not stopping the real world work. You're actually using those technology for the benefit. But the numbers are relatively small overall. And I think part of that is because they're A, very expensive, and B, they do have to be really, really well designed, otherwise they become less than useless. So I think, you know, the challenge for organisations with smaller budgets, they just can't afford to do VR and AR. But we're, for instance, um, playing with a tool at the moment called GatherTown, which it's it's a, an online platform, but it it allows you to sort of feel a bit embodied again. Because in GatherTown, you've got like a little avatar that can move around and you can go into different rooms. You can take people into breakout rooms, literally. And, you know, you can have four breakout rooms and you, you actually sort of, OK, you're not physically moving. The visual imagery of your avatar moving actually takes, gives you a connection that is very different to most of our virtual classroom based stuff, which means you're sitting there for, you know, a few hours, I mean, I always try and include in, in virtual classrooms some element of people getting up to stand up to do something if they can. But I think, you know, that technology, we're not exploring all the options. And we're kind of going down that, you know, well, VR can do it really well and it can, but it's expensive. But there are lots of other really useful tools out there that we, we could be starting to embrace. So, David, as we try and bring this together, how do you start doing that? What's the process of actually upgrading what you do? So it, it comes back to that, that point you challenged me on earlier, being really, really clear about what is the organisation need and L&D's role within that. 
then being really, really clear about what the learners need. So it's no good going off and buying something that isn't a good fit with your organisation and with your learners. And really kind of thinking around what's the trajectory for that piece of learning, because for that piece of kit, rather, because you don't want to be ending up buying something that's going to end up like MySpace or Bebo or something like that, what's, what's going to go out of favour or out of updates in, in, in kind of a few years. So really kind of make sure whatever it is you're looking for really ties in with the organisation need and the learner need and can be accessible to people at a time they need it. And of course, there will be organisations where they won't be able to afford that. There was this somewhat worrisome finding that only 18% of organisations surveyed think that their investment and resourcing will go back to what it was before the pandemic. So I wondered, Stella, in the face of that, what would be on your checklist for learning and development managers to kind of get the most bangs for your buck? I think use the tools that are already there, you've already got. You know, if you go digging around in your system you've probably got all sorts of tools you probably haven't been harnessing or using as well as you could investigate the tools that are free to use or very cheap to use um, and there's plenty of them and i would say you know be really curious talk to other people what are they doing maybe there's ways you can collaborate to use tools together so really think more broadly rather than just you know the, the big lms tools that are sold to us at learning tech for instance there's all sorts of other things you can create chatbots quite easily you can create apps that support learning quite easily without them being very expensive so i think it's it's looking at what are the smaller things you can do even even mobile phone technology um you know messaging there's some people who actually create whole courses through messaging which are very good if there's very little money around Well, it's very reassuring. You've actually started going through some of the key findings in the Learning and Skills Report and the first one you've covered there, Embracing Digital Innovation. And of course, David, you can start small, can't you, and experiment before scaling up. Absolutely. And and, and kind of if you look at kind of any piece of advice around this, that is exactly the, 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 the one key consistent piece of advice. Start small. And, you know, kind of also what I would say is um, don't be afraid of harnessing the skills and knowledge of the people that you've got within your organisation, because there's bound to be people who who in their own time invest lots of time, effort and energy in keeping themselves digitally up to date. Now, there's something else in your findings here, which um, I'm going to ask Stella about. It talks about agreeing the role of line managers in the L&D context. Is that not clear what the line managers are supposed to do? I think that's one of the biggest challenges that, you know, L&D, I've been in L&D for 20 odd years and every single year somebody says, but it's line managers, they're the ones. And I feel really sorry for line managers. They're really squashed. They've got loads and loads of different things to do and they don't know that much about learning. So they don't necessarily know how to support a learner. One of the things I think is really valuable and we in L&D can do is support line managers. So for instance, somebody goes on a course or, you know, they, they do a piece of digital learning and we give the line manager some questions to ask them, you know, what would be really good feedback questions to ask this person after they've been on this course and make it easy for line managers. Because at the moment we just say, yes, yes, after a course, you have to give them feedback or you have to ask them questions. And they're like, I haven't got time and I don't know what to do. Give people checklists, you know, make it really, really easy for them and support the line manager in supporting the learning or use the system to do it. There's other ways to do that as well. 
and also with that, in, in terms of the time we do spend in learning development with line managers, to what degree are we developing them to be great people developers themselves? You know, we, we, we tend to have line managers together and we, we tend to throw things at them that they may never, ever use and kind of generic in virtually every single line, uh, line manager or leadership course. Let's actually take some time to to say, look, you know, kind of part of your role, line manager, is is to be a great people developer, and here's some tips how to do it. Fantastic. Well, you've been through many of the findings there. Uh, certainly, uh, the last one you've already alluded to: be evidence based, define your desired outcomes, engage key stakeholders, gather evidence, and measure the learning impact. Can people do the job they need to do? But again, that can be measured because it might be measured by, you know, the number of customers they serve, the number of customers who say they're happy. It could be any number of things, but it's about measuring what people do, not what they thought about the training, not what they thought about the lunch, but what are they actually doing when they get back to work? And and you can't measure that immediately. They get back after a training program or a learning event. It's got to be once they've had time to implement what they're learning and to practice it and get feedback and really embed it as part of their normal behaviour. Brilliant. Worth just saying here, if you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you check out our previous one, still very much current. We've alluded to some of these issues about post-pandemic digital fatigue, how to set healthy boundaries on home working. I did just want to run past you what I was seeing from the CEO of WeWork, Sandeep Matrani, who suggested there is an easy way for companies to spot their most engaged employees. He says they're the ones who want to come back to the office at least two thirds of the time. And I know Apple, among many other companies, had a big row internally about this. Uh, But uh, Sandeep Matarani says those who are least engaged are those who are most comfortable working from home. Is he right, David? It's a controversial thing to say. Things what come to mind as I as I hear that things like presenteeism, things like um, you know kind of some resistance to change, listening to employees, and kind of really understanding how to implement a hybrid working system, yeah, kind of lots of things. I'm I, I'm afraid I can't um, agree to what uh, Sandeep has said there at all. And I think for me, I think you know it comes down to trust, doesn't it? If you've got people who are you know, they enjoy their job, they're trusted to do their job. I don't think it comes down to whether you want to go back into the office. Maybe they've got many, many other commitments and actually they can work much better from home because they haven't got to spend two or four hours commuting a day. So is it, is it, does it say more about him? Is it really a sign you're a snowflake if, you, if you're a bit nervous of going back to the office? No, absolutely. And I think everyone is a bit nervous because, you know, it's a big change. We, we've got used to working like this. And I think we have to accept that people will feel... You know, we've been bombarded with information about how dangerous it is in the office, how dangerous it is outside. I think people will feel nervous because it's it's another change and change always comes with a feeling of anxiety. Well, it's been great having you both. So a big thank you to our dynamic duo, Stella Collins and David Hayden. Talking points like this every month. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an edition. But thank you for listening. Until next time from me and all of us at the CIPD, it's goodbye. Goodbye.